Good morning and welcome to Crossroads of Rockland History on WRCR.com. I'm Claire Sheridan from the Historical Society of Rockland County, and our topic today is the current exhibition at the Historical Society of Rockland County, and specifically the marionettes of Paul Peabody. My guest will be Peabody's daughter, Jeannie Peabody Walsh. The Historical Society of Rockland County is a nonprofit educational institution and principal repository for original documents and artifacts relating to Rockland County. Our headquarters are a four-acre site featuring a history museum and the 1832 Jacob Lavelt House, and we're located at 20 Zucker Road in New City. We're listed on the National Register of Historic Places, and we are a designated New York State Path-Through History site. Part of our broad and challenging mission is to share the history of Rockland County with the public. And our annual appeal is underway, and we rely on financial support from the public, so we hope you will consider making a tax-deductible contribution to the Historical Society to help us meet our mission. Please visit our website at rocklandhistory.org to learn more about how you can donate. I'm delighted to be speaking about the new exhibition entitled Joy and Peace at the Historical Society of Rockland. The exhibition includes dollhouses and miniatures, but it also features handmade marionettes by Paul Peabody. And I'm very pleased to welcome Peabody's daughter, Jeannie Walsh, to the show. Welcome, Jeannie. Thank you, Claire. It's great to be with you. Before we begin speaking about your dad, tell us a little bit about your your own background, please. Sure, sure. Thank you. Well, first, my sincere appreciation to the Historical Society for displaying some of my father's work. Um, As mentioned, the exhibit includes some of his watercolors, calligraphy, handcrafted miniatures, musical instruments, and, of course, his marionette. It's really a beautiful tribute to his work and really gives you a peek into his craftsmanship and, most important to me, a glimpse of the kind and gentle person that he was. So to answer your question, my hometown was up in New York, and me and my two older brothers, Tim and Paul, and my parents lived in a little house on Van Houten Street right down by the Hudson River, uh, as I said, North Nyack. I'm a lifelong Rockland County resident, and I still have a strong connection to Nyack and the community where I grew up. Tell us how your father became intrigued with puppets, and marionettes in particular. He was always interested in storybook characters. He's, and, I should add, that he loved watching classical dance. Um, he found Pinocchio inspiring, and the idea of wooden figures that moved enchanted him and transported him to a magical old-fashioned world, born of fairy tales that came alive. And I think it was really storybooks that inspired his interest in puppetry and toys that moved. And actually, as a young boy, he and his older sister, Millicent, used to give puppet shows every summer. They uh, lived in the city, and they performed together in Central Park. I don't recall if he ever told me what materials they used for their shows, if they were handmade or not, but I do recall his eyes lighting up and twinkling when he talked about those summertime shows. I believe that that was really the beginning of the fascination with marionettes and puppet, and puppet shows. Um, and many of the marionettes he carved are from storybooks, including uh, favorite characters from Beatrix Potter's short children's stories and from beloved ballets like uh, The Nutcracker. Woodworking was another of his many talents. How did he learn woodworking? I think it's really multifaceted. Um, While he was studying at Princeton University, he was introduced to the Quaker philosophy, and he really embraced the Quaker faith. And that led him to Maine, where he worked with the Native American Passamaquoddy Indians. 
He worked with others there, building houses, singing songs with the children, helping to improve their overall quality of life. And I think this work, um, which he found constructive and helpful, was, was gratifying and really enhances his desire to continue work that was purposeful. And I think he would say it was there that he became resolved to always find ways to serve the poor, the ill, or the needy. And later he spent time at Pendle Hill, which is another Quaker school. Um, it's actually the location where he met my mom as well. And it was there that I think he really perfected his woodworking skills through time spent with a shipbuilder named Gordon Leslie and a carpenter named Daniel O'Hagan. Dan taught my dad how to use hand tools, huge in my dad's life. Um, he, he taught him to build furniture using traditional methods. And I recall um, O'Hagan taught him how to make dovetail joints, um, a form of box joint where the fingers are locked together by diagonal cuts. Um, they're more secure than a finger joint. And this beautiful joint was used in making small boxes he made as well as other gifts for my mom early on. And I remember Dan, my dad saying that Dan taught him to make mortise and tenon joints. Mortise and tenons are standard and mission-style furniture. Um, and he began making furniture for the family. So he used this on, he used these, these skills on many of the handmade things in our home, as well as in dollhouses he made later for me. So O'Hagan's mastery over woodworking was something my dad marveled in. And O'Hagan had a commitment to hand tools and the practice, practice of not using any power tools in his woodworking, and that was something that my father adopted and refined. I would say that's sort of the, um, the evolution of, of his woodworking. This really was his hobby. What did he do for his profession? Great question. This definitely wasn't his, his profession. Um, it absolutely was his hobby. Um, he worked at the Fellowship of Reconciliation, or FOR, as you knew it, for 36 years. For those that don't know, FOR is a U.S.-based branch of the International Fellowship of Reconciliation, which partners with about 50 other countries. And the majority of the time he worked there, he was editor or was one of the editors for Fellowship Magazine. Tell us a little bit more about the Fellowship of Reconciliation. Yeah, so I'm really glad you're asking that, because in this period of political unrest, the FOR feels like a really a beacon of hope. The FOR has actually been a global emissary for peace among people in many nations since 1914. And they continue to provide ongoing programs and projects concerned with both domestic and international peace and justice, and, and encourage nonviolent alternatives to conflict. They have members from different religions, spiritual and ethnic backgrounds and traditions. And funny, a little trivia I found online about FOR that I wanted to share that I didn't know about was that uh, the organization was actually founded on a handshake between two men. Uh, one was Henry Hodgkin, an English Quaker, and Friedrich Schultz, or I think Friedrich Sigmund Schultz who was a German Lutheran, whose countries had both just declared war on each other. And the two were attending a conference uh, with religious leaders who had sought to prevent the spread of conflict, and in this case, it was the First World War. And they vowed to work together for peace, even though their countries were in armed conflict. And fortunately, you know, generations of FOR members have continued that pledge. FOR's mission then, and has remained one of conflict resolution through pacifism, uh, communication and commitment to, peace, uh, to peaceful solutions. So when asked if I would share my father's work at the Historical Society, um, it was a resounding yes, in large part, because this period in our history feels so personally painful and really antithetic, antithetical to the basic care and dignity for countries that as a society we should expect our politicians to uphold. 
If my father was here, I believe his marionette shows would continue to be a means for bringing a quiet, gentle, and often poignant communion between people. Um, his gentle form of entertainment was disarming to children and adults, and there was really magic in the shows. It came from a place of sincerity and compassion that my father displayed in his marionette and in his interactions with the audience. Really is a perfect topic for Martin Luther King Day to talk about nonviolent resolution and uh, a peaceful world. Yeah. My wish, uh, as I mentioned to you early on, is that his work, the beauty of his marionettes and his vision for a more peaceful and just world will be an inspiration to us all. So I hope people will, will go to the exhibit and feel, feel that energy that I think really comes from his work, all of it. Yes. Tell me about what, what his first marionette was, the first one that he built. So I believe, and this is a tough one because I'm not, I'm not 100% sure, but I believe his first marionette was Coco the Clown. And Coco is a beautiful and benevolent clown with this sort of deep red velvet pants, a striped shirt, gentle eyes, and a long nose with a, uh, a big red ball sort of at the end of it, a perfect nose for pinching. My dad would bring Coco out from behind the curtains with some classical piece of music, and he would demonstrate that with a simple handshake or a pinch of Coco's nose, his hat would pop up. And to the delighted children, Coco would literally slide around the floor and make his rounds to the children who were sitting there on the floor. And with each shake of a hand or a pinch of his nose, up went the hat. He performed on the same level as the children, so as to ensure that the marionettes were right there at eye level. So it was really magic. And the other thing to, that, that's important to mention is not only did he handcraft uh, these marionettes, but he also sewed all the clothing. So the, the entire marionette from head to toe was handcrafted by your father. Yeah. I think when you, really, when you look at the marionettes on exhibit, I think what you're struck by are the details of the painting of the faces and, as he said, the clothing on the marionettes. He carefully mixed his paints and slowly brought them to life. You'll see that their features are not designed to be delicate or realistic, but, but they're really painted in this sort of exaggerated style that was true to their old world origins. Or, origins that he said were designed to have their greatest effect when the marionettes were performing in front of a live audience. So he really, he carefully and really painstakingly chose the colors, the fabric, and spent hours, I can still recall it, his old Singer sewing machine. Um, in our music room at home. You're listening to WRCR and Crossroads of Rockland History. I'm Claire Sheridan from the Historical Society of Rockland County, and our topic today is the current exhibition at the Historical Society of Rockland, entitled Joy and Peace, featuring the marionettes of Paul Peabody. My guest is Peabody's daughter, Jeannie Walsh, and our phone lines are open throughout the broadcast. Uh, Just a reminder, if you have a comment or a question, you're welcome to call in. The number is 845-429-1700. That number again is 845-429-1700. Where did your dad perform with these marionettes? So they started out really local, but he gave shows in various states throughout the U.S. He loved performing at libraries, schools, and especially if they were serving poor or underserved communities. I think the farthest he ever traveled, though, was England's Stratford-on-Avon Puppetry Festival. He really enjoyed that. He wasn't someone who loved to travel far from home, but that was really special. He, he really loved that. I do recall his excitement when asked to perform at the Morgan Library on the east side of Manhattan for the first time. 
the Morgan Library was formerly the Pierpont Morgan Library, and I think it was founded to house the private library of J.P. Morgan in the early part of the 20th century. It's really beautiful. I went to, and did one show with him there, and it was a place that my dad really felt privileged to perform in. Another favorite I have to mention was Cathedral of St. John the Divine. For a number of years, he was invited to perform there annually. The occasion was always the day of Feast of St. Francis. I think this occurs around October 4th each year. Anyway, I recall attending with him one year, and there was an awe-inspiring musical performance by the Paul Winter Consort, all in celebration of the beauty of the animal kingdom. The service concludes there with a procession of animals, a silent parade of creatures, great and small, down the nave of the cathedral for a blessing of the animals. And my father was asked to walk with a marionette down the church aisle to be blessed. And this was followed by a marionette show right outside the cathedral. It was a gathering of children and families with their pets all in attendance. Really, really beautiful. Beautiful opportunities and a beautiful way to, to share what he was doing. So the performances, like I said, originally began in local facilities like schools and libraries. But as time passed, the demand for shows often exceeded his available time. So he tried to go where he was needed the most. By that, I mean he would go to, you know, underserved areas, tried to help, you know, in schools where there were disabled children. This might mean a trip to the Bronx or Head Start program, etc. And another point to make is that he accepts little pay for performances. Nothing about this was monetary-based, was in, by no means a money-making venture, quite the opposite, actually. I would bet that he made next to no money after his expenses were paid and after he paid his helper. But fortunately, his overhead was minimal because he really made um, all the characters from from kind of you know scraps of, of fabric and, and old pieces of wood that he would find in different places. So... Fortunately, it wasn't expensive to do. It was just time-consuming. So he was really there, I think, to charge very little but to share the marionettes and create memories. The demand often increased during holiday periods, and it was those times he loved, like, performing at schools. Uh, he was in, so inspired that he even would sometimes tailor shows to meet uh, program needs. One in particular was for the Elizabeth Morrow School in Englewood. The kindergarten there put on an annual circus for their parents at the end of the school year, sort of a culmination of the curriculum, and they asked my dad to come and perform there for the kindergarten. And he was able to put on a marionette show with a circus theme. I still remember he used um, one of his characters, Beppo the horse, with a tiny horseback rider, Thumbelina, on his back. And Beppo performs daring jumps through hoops and other antics. And the circus ends with this little dog, Toby, who's actually uh, at the Historical Society now, which is a favorite marionette. And Dog Toby's a circus dog that spins colorful tops of various sizes on a long pipe extending from his mouth, catches hoops on his tail, and his skit ends with a gentle winding of his tail that leads to a flapping of his ears to which he ascends upwards, flying into the arms of children. And every child would extend their arms out, waiting for a hug and farewell from Toby. So, you know, he could tailor a show to meet the needs of the community. And, you know, that would evolve into something else. Toby became probably back from the day of that, you know, the, the, the performances at Elizabeth Morrow to be a favorite. And he used that same circus theme with Toby as a, a, a crowd pleaser um, ending his shows. Tell us a little bit more about shows that you remember. Yeah, gosh, there's so many. <laughs> I think so what comes to mind was one of my father's earliest shows that I saw. He introduced the character 
But actually, he didn't use frequently. Her name was Tasha Tiptova. And Tasha was a beautiful Russian ballerina who appears in a white tech um, tutu, a tiara on her head, just looking absolutely beautiful. And as I mentioned, my dad read a lot about classical dance. He watched many performances, too, so that he could understand the delicate hand motions and foot motions that made their movements so beautiful. And he somehow managed to capture the intricacies of dance and these, these wooden, heavy creatures and make it look so effortless. You would not have believed that these were heavy. I mean, really, heavy wooden marionettes in his hands. They looked like they had a life of their own and as if they were dancing on their own. So one of my earliest memories was watching Tasha Tiptova dance. And she just, like I said, she just looked like she was moving on her own. It was really awe-inspiring. I, I never forgot that. I can still see it in my memory, you know, in my mind right now. It's amazing. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about how, when, when he would do a show, how the children were, you know, asked to sit as an audience. He, he never performed on a stage. Instead, he would sort of draw a broad arc in a large open space so that the children could gather closely and be part of the performance. Their parents were usually seated in the distance behind them. And, you know, the children didn't need their parents to understand and interpret this. And, again, the setting was, was usually dark and exciting with spotlights and music building, the anticipation for each of the acts. The balletic, I would say a balletic style, he would come out and perform inside the art. And they would sweep swiftly and gracefully from side to side, kind of blurring the line between the performer and the child. He kind of, he really liked to say that he disappeared when the performance began. So the children were players in the act. They would be blessed by the fairy princess, be treated by Dr. Jelly Dom, gather laundry from Mrs. Piggy Winker, or would feel, you know, the warm and loving embrace, like I said, of dog Toby after he flew into their arms. He made sure that the children were always, you know, intricate to the act. And after the show ended, um, a really wonderful part was that he would invite the children behind the curtain to meet each of the marionettes in person. He'd let them touch them, pull on their strings, and that way he sort of built a closer bond with the children and the marionettes. And each child, they invariably had their favorite, and they were always excited to tell you why. And as, so, a, as a teenager, you, you were part of the performances, weren't you? Yeah, I definitely was. I spent some time working, you know, learning about marionette making, learning about uh, working in my dad's shop together. It was, it was a really special time in my life. It really was. I guess I could premise that, if you don't mind, by telling you a little bit about the time I spent working with my dad, because um, it was so important to later doing marionette shows with him, if that's all right. Mm-hmm. I developed a really special bond with my dad during my teen years. He agreed, actually, to teach me about woodworking. If I was willing to get up at 5 a.m. to work with him, keep in mind this was before my school day began and before his work day started. So he would knock on my bedroom door and say, you know, Gene, if you want to work with me, get up now. And so for literally for a few years, we worked together in his workshop. And it was really there that I learned um, the basics of hand tools, like using a foot treadle lathe, hand chisels, horse for shaping wood, planes for smoothing out the wood and others. And the basement and his woodworking shop was a magical place for me, and it was perhaps where I got to know my father the best. Between the lessons on how to use hand tools, I learned more about who my father was and where he came from. There were two framed quotes on the end of uh, his main workbench, and they really epitomized his mission. One quote was from Antoine de Saint-Exupéry's The Little Prince, and the quote is, 
it's only with the heart that one can see rightly what is essential is invisible to the eye. And at the other end of the workbench, um, there was a quote frame that said, I would like to be firmly convinced that I get more than I take from them. So in the gentleness of his shop, with its quiet reverence for wood and life itself, my dad shared, you know, this beautiful world he created with me. How many marionettes did he make over the years? There are about nine or ten on display at Rockland Historical Society, but I think in his lifetime, he brought to life over 90 marionettes, I think. I don't know the total number. I haven't counted them, but I have a kind of a funny anecdote here. We, have a very, we had a very small house, and anyone who knew us would remember the puppets hanging on pegs all around our house. We had about four dozen, literally, hanging on all four walls in our dining room. It was a unique home. And I joked, as you can only imagine what it was like for me to bring my future husband, Dan, home for dinner for the first time with all these marionettes hanging around. We used to all laugh about that. (laughs) But this makes me think, I recently read that Michelangelo said, I saw the angel in the marble, and I carved until I set him free. What a beautiful thought. I was struck by that quote, because my dad used to say that he chiseled in wood to uncover the character bound inside. And I think if my dad had lived to be 100... We'd have many more marionettes because I think there were lots of angels inside those, those pieces of wood. And he would be surprised by the personalities who would emerge from the wood, bearing little resemblance to the characters that he intended to create. I mean that. He would joke, well, I started out making so-and-so, but this other character emerged, and I have to give them life. So, Claire, while they you know, hang motionless today, these marionettes were created to perform, to move freely and gracefully, and to inspire generations of children. Tell us a little bit about the techniques that he used to make the marionettes. As mentioned before, these were all handcrafted, no power tools. And um, I think I shared with you an article by Jim Liner. He wrote an article about my father um, that was published in the Nyack Villager. And it's beautiful. He writes, Paul believed electric power tools did violence to the wood, and he was the epitome of nonviolence. That quote beautifully depicts both the philosophy and the method for the creation of my dad's marionette. He would wake up at about 4 a.m., go down to his basement workshop to work on his creation, whether it was the foot-operated treadle that I mentioned or using the, the shaving planes on his long, small horse, delicately carving with an array of chisels on his expansive wooden bench. He spent literally tens of thousands of hours over a span of about 40 years bringing uh, the marionettes to life. How long do you think each character might have taken to create? He said, we, we asked him that because this seemed, you know, incredible amount of time. He said each one took about 100 hours. That included the entire process of gathering the wood, chiseling, painting, clothing, bringing, and, and, and as well as preparing the skit. The skit was often timely because he reported, I mentioned that characters often had other ideas from their original role, and he had to adjust his goals to their personality. So the whole thing, I mean, he, he I think I mentioned, he made all their clothing. He, you know, would, would create a template and hand sew and then use the finger sewing machine to, to put together the, the outfit and make adjustments. So it was really, you know, as you said, a labor of, of joy and you know, great pleasure for him, but many, many, many hours. But it really was a labor of joy and peace. So tell us tell us a little bit more about that. Well, I mean, I think at the very heart of who my father was, he was a joyful person with a childlike enthusiasm that inspired him to share and create. And also, as mentioned, I think 
and his soul, he wanted to reach as many people as possible. I think he recognized, um, even back then, that children grew up too quickly and that they were exposed and bombarded by, um, you know, television and images that, that just, he wished, I guess, in short, he wished that he could bring a gentle, peaceful form of entertainment to children, and he was able to do it through his marionette. So both his, his beautiful, you know, joyful soul that he had and uh, his desire to, to bring something gentle to children really fit into the whole idea of being joyful and peaceful. And also, I think what I loved when you talked to me about it was how he introduced a lot of classical music and classical dance, which for some children might have been the only time they, they heard or saw that. Isn't that true? Yeah. And he always used different pieces of classical music. It wasn't always the same piece each time, but it was always some piece of classical music. Always. Ne- never wavered from that. And you're right, that may have been the only opportunity that they ever had to hear classical music. What can people expect when they come to the exhibition? I, when I visited, I thought it was absolutely beautiful. And again, I want to express uh, appreciation um, again to everyone who worked so hard to make it come to life. And I think, and I hope that they can be inspired by the beauty of his work, and also, as I said, touched by the gentle man that he was. Um, you know, again, they're going to see watercolors, calligraphy, handcrafted miniatures, and many marionettes. So it really, really gives you a peek into his remarkable woodworking skills, the craftsmanship, and again, that glimpse into the kind, gentle, fanciful person that he was. So I hope that they walk in and get to see it and walk out with a sense of, of who he really was, this kind, gentle person. And that's my hope. Yes, well, it's, it's, it is beautiful. I mean, these marionettes are incredibly elaborate. They're beautiful. But in addition, as you said, you know, it, there's more. There's his woodworking, his miniatures. He, he wrote a book, so there's a lot of the preparatory sketches for his book. Um, beautiful drawings and watercolors and uh so there's a lot of there's a lot there and uh he was an incredibly talented person with a beautiful message and uh you know we're we're thrilled to be able to show it that's all the time we have today i'd like to thank you Jeannie, for being here thank you so much well thank you for for everything that you've done and again thank you to everyone at the historical society for bringing his work Uh, back to life, so to speak. The exhibition uh, can be seen from now until February 25th. The exhibition hours are Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Sunday from 12 noon to 4 p.m. If you can't make it at those times, you can call for an appointment and come at a mutually convenient time. So keep in mind that all of the information that we discussed All of the contact information, as well as a recording of this broadcast, will be available at rocklandhistory.org. I hope you will tune in to the next episode of Crossroads of Rockland History on Monday, February 19th, right after the morning show. My guest will be Bill Batson, who is leading an exciting and important oral history project called the NIAC Record Shop Project, which will focus on the African-American history in our community. I hope you will tune in. That'll be Monday, February 19th. And please visit the Historical Society's website to find out about all of our other events and programs, including the exhibition, as well as day trips. Our website, again, is rocklandhistory.org. And, of course, you can always call us at 845-634-9629. 
And please follow us on Facebook, where we have a growing group of friends and fans. You can also find us on Twitter, Tumblr, and our new social media presence on Instagram is fun, too. At Rockland History is our handle there. And don't forget that many of our broadcasts are archived at rocklandhistory.org. Just go to our landing page and type radio programs in the search box. I'm Claire Sheridan. Thanks for listening to Crossroads of Rockland History on WRCR.com. Thank you.